In a world where movies are everywhere, these heroes will make sense of some of the world's strongest films. Jimmy, Ben, and Stuart. This is Movie Show Theater. This is Movie Show Theater. I'm Jimmy Malone. I'm Stuart Randolph. So here's the thing about this show is that we are passionate film lovers that are trying to extrapolate the historical and social significance of film. Or just have fun. Yeah, and and also have fun. We love talking about movies. Let's be honest. Exactly. We love talking about movies. The thing that I like doing is not just talking about them, but looking beyond them. Just, just watching them and taking them apart and putting them back together again and then watching them again and just talking about them. Exactly. I mean, seriously. I mean. Exactly. It's kind of become our love letter to cinema. Truly. So it's uh, essentially, it's kind of a film analysis. It's kind of a film breakdown. It's kind of a film review. But I, I do want to mention that we are community-based there's a couple things that we're trying to get involved in with the community with film. So this is the second time on air that we've talked about Blade Runner. This is the first time that we've made Blade Runner the subject of what we're talking about. The absolute subject. The, I mean, that is what we are talking about tonight. It's the, not any other film. Now, we're not making comparisons. We're just talking about the film Blade Runner. Exactly. Which, by the way, happens to be Jimmy and I's favorite movie ever. It's our absolute favorite. And just for the record, this show is going to be an hour long. The podcast, as you'll see on the website, some of them have exceeded three hours. (laughs) We did a podcast that was the first Harry Potter film and the first Lord of the Rings film, and they were over three hours long, which is fun, and it's fine, but this is a different medium. How many people did we have on that one? I mean, it was like six different- Five five or or six. six different people who were there with us. So this is something just about the podcast- on occasion, we have done a bad movie podcast where we celebrate good, bad movies, or bad, bad movies, as, as the case has uh, been several times. Um, and then on occasion, we will take two separate movies that have some sort of commonality. One of them that we did was the first Lord of the Rings and the first Harry Potter, both released in 2001. Both yep, had... Yep, yep. You know, both created a huge following with the fantasy, blah, 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 book adaptation. I think we started really strong with uh, Terminator, Indiana Jones. Oh, I do. I know. And that the was sound. a strong one. Yeah. So we've chosen Blade Runner once again as yeah. our craft uh, for a lot of reasons. Uh, for w- One of the reasons in my mind is because the more time that passes, the more relevant this film becomes. And, I mean, you look at realistic cities like Tokyo – and other cities in Japan that have kind of become sources of over-industrialization. And well, it's, it, the, it's, the, uh, well, it's not just the over-industrialization. It's the advertising and everything else. Yeah. I mean, you're just saturated in it. If you want to go over-industrialization, you go to Beijing. That's where you, you know, they take fake landscape portraits instead of in front of pictures because the smog is so thick they can't actually get a decent picture of the landscape. Mm-hmm. So 
but and then that that harkens to, to to Blade Runner, which atmospherically is so dark and dingy and grim and everything else that, if anything, in a modern day sense, in today's sense, that we're we're looking at like you know you, you could take that L.A. and put it in China now, and you wouldn't be far off. Yeah, no, and and I think that when this movie first came out in '82, it was such a a far departure from where we were as a culture, and now. 15, 20 years later, it's like just barely an exaggeration I know. as far as yeah. our obsession with robotics and technology, and it's it's not far off. And that's the thing, too, if you look at the source material, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, that one had a little bit more of an environmental aspect, which it truly is, was, it's, yeah. touch, it's touch upon a little bit more um, in the book than it is in the film, but there's that aspect there. Um, because there's talk in Blade Runner about moving off-world. Well, the reason that they're moving off-world is, you know, there's kind of a fallout. And part of the fallout, too, is what we've done to ourselves, which comes up in the man versus machine themes right. in both the book and the movie. That, well, we kind of have all these fun ways of destroying ourselves completely. Well, sometimes it, slowly, but the, sometimes envi- the environmental aspect of it, though, I mean, think about it. The only thing we see in the movie until the very end, and depending upon what cut of the movie you watch, the only thing we see is this dark, beat-down, truly a film-noir sort of world. I mean, it's 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 raining constantly. It's it's the, the glimpse of sunshine we get. Uh, there are a couple of them, but very few and far between. And one of them is, you know, when we're first introduced to the character Rachel, when uh, our, our okay, well, the characters Deckard, you know, he's our Blade Runner, and then Rachel, she's this uh, femme fatale, a femme fatale to Deckard, definitely. But then, and and, and but uh, 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 sorry, I just we built this city on rock <laughs> and roll. <laughs> sorry, my brain just went. It happens. This has been yeah. brought to you by Coca Cola. Oh yeah, <laughs> great. Thanks, Ben. Anyway. So no, but but you get to you get to see the sun a couple of times, but it but still it, it's essentially shot in darkness in rain. It's shot in a way that makes you the setting itself becomes a character of the film, and without that setting, you wouldn't have the film. And and truly, truly, I think that if you put it in any other way, if it was a bright and cheery world like Fifth Element or or anything else, which wouldn't be impossible without Blade Runner, if you do it in that aspect. I'm sorry, you lose whole volumes of meaning behind the entire movie. Especially yeah. the, the scene when they're in Tyrell's, you know, open office, so to speak, where there's that huge window and it's one of the few glimpses of sun that you get. That's what I was going to say up. a minute ago, right. So yeah. it's, it's a really good contrast when you have constant darkness. So when the light appears, you know, it's, it's something special. So you kind of get, uh, like we've kind of hinted at, you know, the feeling that the sun doesn't really come out a lot because there's probably this huge cloud of smog oh, that's a, yeah. blocking everything for, you know, 90% of the time. Plus you have to yeah. think. Plus you have to think. Think about it. The rain that's falling. How? I mean, we do have, what, acid rain right now. How much of that is truly toxic that's falling at that point? No. Um, I wanted to mention, too, if you're just tuning in, this is Movie Show Theater. We're talking about Blade Runner tonight, and we're kind of picking it apart on a most nerdy level. Talking about how Speak the... Speak for yourself. Whatever, Ben. Oh, you can't talk about Blade Runner not be nerdy. I'm pretty Three sure. Three snaps in a circle, I liked, I liked Harrison Ford's 
jacket in that movie. That's all I know. Yeah. So the elements of the film definitely serve as a character. So I was watching this movie yet again today for probably the tenth time this month, no joke. <laughs> and I watched the international cut, the one with the narration. Right, and right. we go back and forth with this. And I love the film noir aspect of this movie. And just, okay, so there's some vocabulary terms with this film. We were talking about last time, if you take a film class, there's a 50% chance that you're going to have to watch Blade Runner. More than likely. Uh, oh, and, yeah. and and it could be anything from lighting to story to characterization to, you know. Novel adaptation, um, too. I mean, oh, absolutely. To a pretty popular thing, especially when it's done successfully, uh, which Blade Runner did, which that's that's a f- really interesting aside. There had been multiple producers, directors that had you know, tried to adapt Blade Runner, and for the most part it was unsuccessful. And the makers of the Blade Runner that we know, Ridley Scott, the production team, put together like a 20-minute reel for Philip K. Dick, and he said, wow, this is my internal world, this is great. Well, the thing was, they hadn't read the book at all? No. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> so that's that's like this, oh, this is pretty God. awesome. So, well, my guess is that even though maybe Ridley Scott hadn't read the book, he was working with people who had. It's just that it's interesting that he was, you know, one of the main visionary driving forces behind it. Obviously, as the director, but he hadn't read the book. And then Philip K. Dick watches this twenty-minute reel and says, "Wow, you guys totally visualized what, what I was imagining." Yeah, which is how so is that, neat. How is because... that humanly possible? I mean, seriously. I think Philip K. I think well, he was, he was on a lot of drugs. I was think, a I lot think of he times. Was, I'm thinking, Frank. Frankly, I think he was high 99 percent of his life at that point. And frankly, no one could have imagined what was in his mind while he was writing. Do androids dream of electric sheep? Yeah, that's like a far departure from even Ray Bradbury. I mean, seriously, we have an electric sheep to interview, so. Yeah, we do. It's charging. Oh, okay, cool. Here, yeah, it'll it'll be ready. Here's the interesting five. Yeah, <laughs> you're hilarious. The, the, the strange thing about this then is that if you go back to the original title, it's not Blade Runner. Obviously, it's Do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep. Why would what are we talking about electric sheep for at that point? Because there are no real animals at that point. You have to yeah. purchase animals. If well, you're in possession of a real animal, you're going to go to jail or worse. The slammer. Yeah, well, I mean, and, and and I think that's what's so interesting. Like with these book adaptations, so we talked about the relevance of Blade Runner in this day and age with this obsession with technology and this over industrialization, and you know, androids are packaging our Christmas presents, they're cleaning our houses, they're you know, in I, our I, I have an android. Yeah, they're in our I, pockets. I don't have a Nexus model, but there is a, a Verizon Nexus Android phone. There's a there's a real pleasure model. There is. Been I can't tell you what all this phone does for me, and I probably shouldn't. Not on. The, not, not not the phone. Now. I mean, not, no, I mean, this literally. Isn't, this isn't the time. No, I mean, that, literally, yeah, like the okay. pleasure model that would be, uh, I guess, a Neanderthal version of Pris. Um, I mean, that literally is a thing now. What? Yeah, they've they've made one. Today, wow. I'm not talking about peers like a human. Wow, and it's creepy. It's that's taking the. Uh, it's yeah, very that's, creepy. It's very yeah, creepy. I would, yeah. But no. but what I think is really interesting about this adaptation is that I think there's a stereotype for book to film adaptations, whereas the author, whether he feels very personal about his tale or whether he just doesn't like the screenplay, like Michael Crichton 
wanted a crap on Jurassic Park. Stephen and, King and The I'm Shining. Sure. Well, and, yeah, yeah, and exactly, Stephen King right. and The Shining, and you which know, he whatever. just now just now recently stopped in his stance because well, on Facebook he shared the famous picture from the last scene with Jack Nicholson. Right, so it's like, okay, right. maybe he's finally just able to let it go. I mean, come on, man, you were behind Maximum Overdrive. You're awesome. I love you, Stephen <laughs> King. But Jeez. come on, true, calm down. Philip K. Dick died before this film was released, but he was able to read the screenplay. He was on set for a lot of the filming, and not only did he approve and did he like it, but he said that this film more than defines the new age of sci-fi. Well, it did. It redefined it. It totally it, it, did. It, it, it took science fiction out of this clean, squeaky, nice world that Star Trek had put it in, and and where where Lucas was headed with Star Wars didn't go far enough. It, it was then, just fun. It was, it was, then you took this film, which really painted a real picture of what our world could possibly be and, and what we could truly visualize as, as happening. I mean, frankly, yeah. that – I mean, whatever happened in that world, whether it was plague, whether it was famine, whether it was drought, whatever it was that was leading that down that road that was causing humans to leave – at that point, whatever it was, that is more real than any other sci-fi that had ever been put out to date, and, mm-hmm. and people could relate to it. I mean, yeah. it was it was it was it was genuine. It, it was, was cutting edge at that time, and and I think now too. I mean, any sci-fi movie that you see in theater, be it wide release or straight to DVD, you will see influences. From Blade Runner. Oh, without a doubt. I promise you. Oh, without a doubt. I mean, and there was a lot of films that led... And and this is why we chose Blade Runner is because there's a lot of movies that you could break down and that you could analyze that have a lot of influences that led up to it. And there's a lot of movies that took influences from it. For Blade Runner, first of all, it's my number one favorite. It's Stuart's number one favorite. We've, We've talked this movie into the ground. But there's a... Uh, three-hour making of, and it's so official that it's on IMDb.com's like feature-length films. It's called Dangerous Days. So the movie opens with this shot of Los Angeles in 2019, and with it's flames. with flames, yeah, with and flames. it's I love just, that part, just like barely oh, an exaggeration. Right, I know it. But again, from the very opening scene, it sets this, it sets the tone. It yeah. sets the tone the tone of the film. You 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 know you're watching something that's fantastic. You know this, you're watching something that's not real. But what you're seeing is something that could be real, and therefore it draws you in that much more. Mm-hmm. It makes you think, oh dear. I could actually be a part of this. Yeah. This could actually happen. And I and I think too part of what separated that movie at the time and well still does when it's compared to a lot of genre entries is that you know you had some of the you had the special effects which at that time and I think still you know do look great but the focus wasn't on special effects up. and bells and no, whistles. No, no, no. The, but the, no, if you watch it again, is, uh, it, what I'm saying is they do hold up, but. The focus wasn't on special effects. No, it was on no, the characters no. and the plot and the it themes. It was the story. Yeah, the it story. It was the story. You know? It was a true story-driven film. And and yeah, it's maybe a little hackneyed. It's it's the cop. It's a cop genre film, somewhat. You know, it's the it's the hey, but there's a bad guy of... that I'm after, and I have to go through all this stuff to get to the bad guy ultimately, who then finds me. But again, while it's still kind of that film noir cop genre film, it feels more genuine than anything that was put out at that time or in my opinion a lot that's come out since yeah i mean well and and it's it's definitely telling of of the film noir as far as 
I feel like the film noir, I have a little, this is the Wikipedia description, but it said the film noir is used to describe stylized Hollywood crime thrillers in the 1950s, largely to describe cynical attitudes and sexual motivations, which is a big part of Blade Runner. Um, Somewhat. Somewhat, well, but it, but it depends on the cut. So there's, de- there's yeah. so many different things oh, yeah. to look at in this oh, yeah, movie. Truly. We haven't even gotten into the music. Oh no, no. Hey, could we do something real quick? I just want to just I think because we we're we're not we don't have the the um, luxury of three hours, which yeah. unfortunately at this point would be great because we could literally take up three hours of airtime, and I don't think it would get boring. I don't. Maybe not. not. I don't for know. Me. Okay, but here's what I'm going to suggest. Could we like go around and pick the one thing, the three of us, that we really truly want to talk about, and yeah. then touch on that one thing? Absolutely. Because I think at this point, I think that would actually help to focus us a little bit. And I think that um, those of you who are listening, you got to understand that literally we could talk of this film for hours and hours and hours yeah. and never get to the bottom of it. Yep. But I think if we touch on the one thing that we really are truly passionate about the film, I think you'll get a better sense of who we are. You'll get a better sense of what we can talk about and what we why we will talk about it. Now, granted, in, in our podcast, when you go to our website and you check it out. Thank you. Yes, thank you very much. When you go there and you check that out and you listen to our podcast, you notice, yes, there is, it is not rated G content, which we do need to keep here on the air. However, okay. So anyway, but at, at that point, though, you got to understand that podcast itself, you're going to hear some weird stuff. Maybe not so weird now on here, but we're going to probably get to the the true root of where we're going with this. Yeah. And I think that if we really, I think that right now, and Jimmy, I'm going to invite you, please go first with this one, because I think that when we round robin this, we'll be able to hopefully hit it right on the nose when we're towards the end and we'll be able to wrap it up. Such a huge part of why we're doing this is trying to spread the excitement and enthusiasm that we get from film. I mean, we found the last podcast that we did, we did a Bad Movies, and collectively we found that among the three of us, in our youths, we used to go to the video stores back in the second cinema days and in the blockbuster days, in the analog days, and try to find the wackiest cover art, the weirdest movies, and just entertain ourselves. And it's this passion that it's not dying out. I mean, there's constantly oh, no. movies are, coming out. There are people out, out there who still, but, yeah. But, I mean. but you, you hear you know terms like miniatures, animatronics, and things like that that are kind of expressions of yesteryear. And that's what birthed this this oh, yeah. passion truly, in me and all truly. of us. I oh, mean, yeah. and we're not film professors. We're not arrogant. Speak for yourself. Well, Ben is a professor. It is very important for us to spread our message of excitement. The other day, I had two hours to watch a movie. I had YouTube up on one window for trailers. I had Rotten Tomatoes up on another window for community and professional reviews. And then I had my Netflix window up. And I got so nerdy, wrapped up, geeky in my own mind. I, I, just, I watched trailers for like two hours. I didn't even get a chance to watch a movie. So... Part of this podcast is to kind of expand and spread the message of social and historical significance and and film. You can use it to escape from your reality, uh, you know, the the whole suspension of disbelief. You can, you know, learn something from it, watch documentaries. Or exactly. Or not. Or just watch it because it's fun and you don't want to listen to it. 
and yeah, so because they can't see us speaking, unfortunately. Because Ben keeps nodding into the microphone, and I don't know that he's aware that it's not actually taking I'm a nodding. picture of him at this point. I'm nodding. I was ben. waiting for Jimmy to talk about the one thing about Blade Runner he wanted to talk. Oh about. yeah, we were getting there. Yeah, he, he <laughs> sorry. Of, he went off. Yeah, I got well, that s- has happened. It happened. I so. got so excited. You must follow the script. So we, yeah, so we follow have about, the script. So we have about twenty minutes. Okay, so if you're just tuning in, this is Movie Show Theater. This is the first episode of a new show on ninety point seven WAZ. Um, you can subscribe on YouTube on iTunes. You can subscribe iTunes. on iTunes. iTunes. Yeah, yes. not YouTube. That's not, not you, a real no, thing. That's not a real it thing. It could be. All right. So my thing, my thing that I take away from this movie, my favorite credit on a movie is the director of photography. And with this movie specifically, when you have a movie that is so incredibly dark and so incredibly absent of any sort of natural light, they have to light this film and make it look believable and they have to do that via artificial terms whatever and i think that's i think that's incredible the opening shot of this film the actual set itself was less than 16 inches tall and so they carved out all of these buildings and they carved out these little windows and they put it on stilts and then they lit this set underneath with like thousands of like microbulbs and they had the torches, and if you look closely at the flames when they're expanded, you know, you see an explosion, and you can kind of get an idea of scale as far as how big the explosion is. It's not big. This movie came out in 1982. Computers were not used at all for editing, for filming, for, you know, whatever. So it's all a matter of ingenuity, imagination, creativity, and it just... It floors me still to this day, even when I compare with movies that came out recently. It's just... No, I agree. No, I, I mean, again, back to the look of the film itself, the feel of the film itself. And and you don't get that very often anymore. There are some films that have come out recently that have been good. And, and so, yeah, no, I agree. That, that is absolutely phenomenal. So yeah, And it pretty much has a look that uh, we touched on this earlier, but if you're going to look specifically at the aesthetics... You know, it has a look and feel that so many sci-fi movies following it, you know, they completely lifted it from Blade Runner. Oh, yeah. Like that, but before that, I mean, you could you could look at movies that came before Blade Runner and say, okay, these movies influenced it with the lighting, even, you know, with the uh, um, the Schuften process or Schuften process. I'm probably not pronouncing that the right way, but they used that in Metropolis. Oh yeah, project characters onto these landscapes, you know. But instead of doing that in Blade Runner, they used a mirror to um, project light onto the actor's eyes to give it that red look um, for well, well, the replicants, replicants, and Deckard. But that's well, that's that's. I I was going to ease. I was going to. I was going to ease into that with with my main takeaway from the film because go go go. I look at things a lot of times from a literary perspective, even when I'm watching a film. What fascinated me the most. The theme of creationism and okay. how it affects the characters' interactions. So uh, it's not always man versus machine, and that's why I thought this film took it to another level because you have somebody like J.F. Sebastian who's really fascinated by these replicants, and he also identifies with them because he has a Methuselah complex, so he's aging rapidly like they are. Maybe not Truly. at the same pace, but 
I forget the actor's name who played J.F. Oh, Sebastian. Geez, yeah, that's. Um, but he's mostly a character uh, actor. He but, is de- yeah. But yeah, at that yeah, time, yeah. he didn't look that old. They had to use makeup to make him look that old, even though now he really does look he like really J.F. Sebastian. Does look like that, but yeah. um, there's the fascination of something he helped create because he worked with Tyrell, and he's actually a, a very intelligent um, person, and he plays chess against Tyrell. You know, in this match of the wits, which. That's another thing, building up these uh, meetings of the minds. When you have Roy, who's obviously brilliant, meeting his father, so to speak. Well, you can't say what he kind of says um, mixed with father because... Well, of course, of course. Well, PG and all that, PG. Right? Yeah. But that's building up to the scene with Tyrell and Roy and playing in with the theme of creationism and man versus machine or man observing what he's created uh to me that's i don't even know if there's a close second for me in the film as far as best scenes go when um roy's pretty much asking for more life from tyrell and exhausting the possibilities and then just in frustration he kills tyrell well you know, he doesn't just kill out, him just he doesn't just kill tyrell he grabs his head crushes it and then the process of it jams his thumbs into the eye sockets. And isn't it really interesting it, that he kisses him first? Oh no I think it's 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 him saying to his creator, you cannot do for me what I want you to do and therefore I will destroy you. Mm-hmm. He and and I think that's the takeaway from that scene. It's the the created in turn destroying the creator. If you want to go there, and and I do this all the time with this film, it's man destroying God at that point in to a certain extent. It's mm-hmm. man dispelling that idea. It's it's man saying, "I'm sorry, I want more. You don't have the answer. Therefore, I am going to look elsewhere." But in the process, because you cannot help me, I will destroy you utterly. Which is what he does to Terrell. Then, and and. I that was one of the scenes that I, w- I I'm glad you brought that up, Ben, because that was one of the scenes that by far is one of the more telling of any of the scenes in the film, because it truly paints a picture of not only how bad the replicants can be, but how human the replicants can be. Mm-hmm. These things that the the that are supposed to be more human than human. That's the Terrell Corporation's motto for their replicants. More human than human. They're stronger. They're better looking. They're smarter. And yet they have a four-year lifespan. And all these things want is more life. And it's interesting too. Uh, in the movie, they hint about a nexus. Seven models. So you think to yourself, "There's, there's kind of that. There's the, something next. There's then. something lurking in the background where you think to yourself, is this going to be, you know, a replicant that lives as long as, if not longer than a human? Have they finally figured out how to do this the right way? And depending on the cut of the movie, watch, which I think I've seen like a standard cut that doesn't have the narration and the director's right. cut. I know the director's cut I watched recently. You'll hear right after the scene where um, Roy kills Tyrell that he also killed J.F. Sebastian. It's like a radio. Yeah, it's a radio. Like yeah, it's, like a, it's like a police. It's, in, it, it's in, like in, a police scan. Yeah. yeah. That kind of bums me out. I wish that it's that a wasn't truth, a reality. Though. I, mean, it was I know, there. it is. It is. I mean, I knew and that I just have from, to deal I, with because that. Because he's just whatever. like, I'll be right with you, J.F., after he kills Tyrell. And then I'm like, oh, yeah, to, J, J.F.'s done. Yeah, and we haven't even gotten First into the music. This is, if you have a comment, if you have a movie that you feel like we should do, if you have a comment about what we're doing now, 
You can find the Movie Show Theater Facebook. Oh, no, I was just going to say, like with Blade Runner being great, some movies are just so terrible that you could do a bad movie singular podcast. Oh, yes. I mean, we could probably expound on Battlefield Earth again for a while because it's just, you you can just take a hatchet to that. I don't think I could handle that, Ben. I know, but I'm just saying with some movies you can absolutely (laughs) take a hatchet to them. I really don't think I could do it, Ben. Sometimes you have to be like Jack Torrance, you have to break out the hatchet. I don't have the intestinal fortitude to that, Ben. Hey, Stu, whose choice was that? Who picked Battlefield Earth? I can't remember. (laughs) I can't do it, Ben. I could not possibly. Stuart's digging his own grave because Johnny Goodboy is... I know. All right, we can't. Okay. We can't. We can't. Okay, here. All right, bingo. so okay. we got about uh, 15 minutes here tonight. Uh, we haven't really even delved into the music. We haven't delved into a couple very important key phrases from Blade Runner that we really didn't get into last time. Stuart, do you have something you need to say? I didn't get a turn. Yes, yeah, Stuart, please. I'm sorry. Can I have my turn now? Stuart, go ahead. Okay. You didn't fill so. the right forms. I didn't. That's obvious. Yeah, no kidding. I didn't fill out the forms. Okay, so anyway, back to okay. So the uh, so hard for me to actually pick one particular part of the I know, film that, I know. That, that truly stands out the most. But I think that I think that if you really if you as you're watching the film and you understand uh, and, and we we don't touch on plot. Sorry, we don't do that. If you want to know the plot, go watch the film. Um, Thank you. Uh, it's one of those things where we're going to touch on the things that we think are important or the things that we touched uh, that that moved us during the film. And so g- go watch the film. Anyway, one of the things that truly and this is towards the end and it, it, spoiler, 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 turn it off if you don't want to hear the spoiler. But one of the things that truly moves me more than anything else in this movie and I think probably is the most standout scene for me. One of the things that I was truly moved by is the final scene with Deckard and Roy Batty. Okay, they had had this fantastic chase scene through one of the most dilapidated, awful places you could even imagine. It's not just falling down; it's rotting beyond all imagination. And in the process, Roy is shutting down as well. His body is starting to turn off, and he is starting to realize that he has a limited amount of time to accomplish this one thing, which is to catch this Blade Runner, this futuristic detective slash cop that has one thing on his mind, which is to end Roy's life. And so that becomes his thing. He's going to find him. He's going to kill him. And he has the opportunity. And he doesn't. The last 10 minutes of the film, Roy, our ultimate bad guy, is holding a white dove in his hand. And he comes to a point where he has just saved Deckard's life. He has literally plucked him from the edge of a building, hoisted him up onto the top of this roof, and set him down. He could have thrown him off. He could have ended it. He could have done everything that he wanted to do to him. But instead, he became more human at that point than any of the human characters that are in the film. And he looks at Deckard and he flat out tells him that there's no way that he was ever going to be able to hear, feel, see what he had seen in the brief amount of time that he had been alive. Mm-hmm. And and I'll, I'll let you discover the line because I, I, I can't do it justice. But there's a line in there that absolutely destroyed me. 
when it's I saw it. It's a whole soliloquy. It, it, I it's mean, that it's that incredible. Last part where he speaks to Deckard and he's like, "You have no idea. You humans have no idea." And, and it absolutely destroyed me when I saw it. And and then the very telling thing is he lets the dove go, and you know that he is dying, and it's a perfect, perfect. It, it, it's it's a perfect analogy for the spirit, if you will, leaving the body, him, his life ending, whatever it is. But it becomes one of those scenes that is truly, I think, iconic, not only for cinema and science fiction, but in, in all of the arts. I mean, it just is gorgeous. Gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous. Yeah. I mean, it, it shows, too, how much... Uh input the actors had into the film, well, yeah. or at least Rutger Hauer, because... Record, he, he made that he, whole he, last he, part up, Yeah, because he because it was scripted, and then he did a rewrite himself that he was credited for, but then on top of the rewrite, he also improvised... That was that uh, last line. The last it, line. That last line, which... We, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll spill it. All right. And it, Tears, it, it, spring, yeah, yeah, well... Etc. Well, stop that. He said, all of these moments will be lost in time, like tears in rain. And if you think about it, yeah, it's deep, it's sappy, but in the moment of that particular film, it, of, of that particular moment of the film, rather, it not only means something, it, I think it sums up just a lot of what was going on in the film because it was a lot of, of really intense moments that, that, that occurred that, oh, geez, there's so much we didn't get to. But again, it, it just sums up everything that occurred and it comes down to who is more human, the human or the android who lets him live? Mm-hmm. And and the decisions that they make, that we make day to day, that make us who we are and why we are what we are. So, Plus it's the delivery, too. If you put those lines in the hands of a less capable actor, it would probably be really cheesy. But with oh, the yeah. way – and it's, it's, you know, the obviously at, the inflection and his, the way moment. he's standing kind of with his head oh. – um, had you know put down and he's kind of just spacing out. There's he believed rain falling in his character. Him. Yeah, and and that's awesome. And uh, it, it's interesting that Red Grahauer, Ridley Scott never even talked to him. Red Grahauer, I think saw. Uh, I'm sorry, Ridley Scott saw Red Grahauer in I think Turkish Delight. And he's like, that's the guy right that's there. That's the guy. That's Roy. Give, yeah. give him the part. I'm yeah. hiring him. So that that definitely turned out for the better. Oh yeah, yeah. no, no kidding. That's the understatement. Of the I mean, Brian James just said. is great. Daryl Hannah is great. Leon. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> he's like the perfect. Joanna perfect Cassidy's idiot. great. Oh yeah, they're all the casting of this film is outstanding. But Rucker Hauer was a stroke of genius for Roy Batty. Yeah, truly. This movie, which we talked about at the top of the hour, could be a 16-week course. We, <laughs> you know, we have these movies that influence Blade Runner. We have these movies that have been influenced by Blade Runner. You know, Metropolis, Fritz Lang, Citizen Kane, Orson Welles, Maltese Falcon, which has certain screenshots that are like directly taken and pasted into Blade Runner. And then after Blade Runner, you know, anything from Brazil to Akira to Ghost in the Shell to Dark City, The Matrix, even Taxi Driver and and Seven, the way that they use smoke and steam as a character and all of these key points that we didn't talk about the first time around, cyberpunk. So what we're going to do... I'm just going to have an uh, interesting fact. I believe the author is William Gibson, who wrote Euromancer, which is Euroma- yeah, one yeah, of the yeah. first cyberpunk novels. He was in the process of writing Neuromancer. He went in and watched Blade Runner. He's like, wow, people are going to think I stole all my ideas from this movie. 
Uh, it, no, and he was already yeah. in the process no, of he writing. He was already it. in the process of writing it. Well, like, it was that time. Uh, it was that time. So, okay, I think we're getting the high sign, aren't we? Yeah, time to wrap things up. We're getting up. the high Get sign. So, here. if you're still with us, thanks for listening. Uh, if you like what we're doing, you want to hear more. Make us make us known of it. Leave a comment. You can find yeah. us on the Facebook. Um, and then we'll be back. And uh, we have plenty of ideas. If you have a better one, let us know. So anyway, this is Stuart. This is Ben. And I'm Jimmy. And this is Movie Show Theater. <laughs>